Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series called Gift Exchange. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Y'all notice how everything becomes about a game in life, pretty much? Um, I can't go outside on my driveway and shoot baskets with my kids anymore. I've got to play a game of horse or a game of pig. Uh, We had a huge pile of laundry of three kids growing up with. None of them do, well, I can't say none of them do their own laundry. Some of them actually do, which is great. Pulled out this big heaping pile of dirty or clean laundry out of the dryer recently, and we made a game out of getting everything folded quickly. Everything has just gotta be a game. Who can match the most socks? Who can get the most shirts folded? Who can get the most shorts together? Who can divide it into the right piles? We make everything about a game. And the one thing that you think we wouldn't make about a game, we often do just about every year at Christmas time. And that is the, the game of exchanging presents. The games that go along with Christmas. How many of you guys are familiar with this new game, Elf on the Shelf? You're laughing, I'm laughing too. I will never ever play Elf on the Shelf. I think it's the sickest, it's the craziest, scariest game ever. And whoever invented Elf on the Shelf is probably a government employee, (laughs) right? Because they're always watching you. They work in dark places and deep dark corners and whenever you're awake and the lights are on, they shut down. They just don't, sorry, if you work for the government, I love you, thank you for your, your time and work for our nation, right? What about Secret Santa? You guys do Secret Santa every year? You exchange presents? Uh, Secret Santa is one thing, you, uh, you write your name on a little piece of paper, shake it around in a hat, somebody grabs the name out of the hat, that's who you're gonna buy a gift for, and you, they don't know it's you, because you are the Secret Santa, you're the one that's uh, going to buy this without them knowing what they're getting. And of course you get these price tags, don't spend over $20 for your Secret Santa. How many of you guys are Office fans, like watching Michael Scott in The Office? Yeah, don't admit this, I watched The Office. Uh, Remember Michael Scott in The Secret Santa? He buys intern Ryan a $400 iPod, and the, the price limit was like 20 bucks that they were supposed to spend. He's so excited. He's got this generous, generous spirit during Christmas, and Phyllis gives him a homemade oven mitt. Phyllis was his secret, his secret Santa. He's so upset by it, he, goes, he loses all of his Christmas spirit. He goes out of the office, just disgusted, and he says, all right guys, he comes back, we're ending the game of Secret Santa, and we're gonna do, what do you call it? The Yankee trade instead, where you can open a gift if you don't like it, you can trade with somebody else, you only get one trade, or you can open the next gift if you decide to open that and you don't want to trade for anything. We, we play all these, uh, all these games, the white elephant. John and Judy Eshelman, almost every year, they have an ornament exchange at their house at Christmas time. And I have seen some of the ugliest, gaudiest ornaments come out of the Eshelman's house. Last year at the Raiders, I think there was a game of uh, Dirty Santa, and I, I'm pretty sure, I'm, I can't remember exactly because I didn't keep it, but I'm pretty sure I left that game with a used umbrella and a marshmallow shooter <laughs> for my kids. We play all these games at Christmas time, and, and some of it's fun, 
Um, a lot of it's just good, good camaraderie and good time to spend with the people, the family, and the friends that we love. But when you think about Christmas, it's much more of a, it's not just that we give gifts. Christmas is, is actually an exchange. Every year when we come to Christmas, we receive and we think about the gift that we all have from Christ. We think about the gift of salvation. He gave us his son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. We receive that gift. But in many ways, we also exchange something with God during this process. We exchange our things for his things. We get his gift of salvation. He gets the things that we need to give over to him, our past life, our sin. Isaiah 61 talks about an exchange, an exchange that Messiah, the Messiah has worked on our behalf, and, and this passage actually underscores about six things that are exchanged. The second that you place your faith in Christ, we get something from him, but we also give something in the process. Believers are exchanging the chains of sin for liberty and freedom. We exchange our sadness, our mourning, for gladness or for God's comfort. We exchange our ashes, the temporariness of our life, the, the fleeting things, the death that is in us because of sin for his beauty. We exchange our faint spirits for his garments of praise. And today, the, the phrase that I wanna center on the most is that we exchange our broken hearts for his divine bandages. We exchange our hurts for his healing at Christmas time. And it's a beautiful thing that we can celebrate every single year. Before we get into this passage and, and some of the details of, of exchanging just our broken hearts for his divine bandages, I wanna talk about Isaiah because this, this book is thick and the context actually teaches us a lot about what the prophet is doing and, and telling us about at this time when we look to the Messiah. Isaiah as a whole is broken up into two major sections. Isaiah 1 through 39 is almost all about judgment and condemnation. Israel has sinned. Isaiah the prophet is speaking for God and asking them to repent of their sin, to come back to him. Chapters 1 through 39 are very dark. They're not happy passages. These are, hey, you guys have sinned. It's time for you to repent and own up because you've been unfaithful to the covenant in which I've given you. When you get to Isaiah chapter 40, everything changes. There's a new note. There's a, a turn in the tone of the book entirely. No longer is the main emphasis sin and, and judgment and condemnation because of that sin, but now it's, it's hope. It's comfort. Comfort, oh comfort, my people, Israel. The second part of the book is um, further divided in probably three main sections. In chapters 40 through 48, there's an announcement of hope. This is again where we read, comfort, oh comfort my people. In chapters 49 through 50, 55, this is the, the servant songs that we hear so much about and preached at times. The servant fulfills God's mission, how he's gonna do it, who the servant is, what he looks like. Finally, in chapters 56 through 66, the servants inherit God's kingdom. And this is the section of scripture that I wanna focus on the most as we move forward and look to the details. 
of Isaiah 61 because um, that entire last section is a, it's a beautiful mirrored structure. You can't help but notice it when you read this block of scripture and put this together holistically. At the bookends in Isaiah 56, the beginning, and at the end of Isaiah 66, the last book, you have God's gracious invitation to all the nations to join the servant. Come to me, you who are thirsty. Come and drink. Drink of the salvation of the Lord your God. After that, you have these great poems that contrast the wicked versus the servants. Those who are aligned with the servant king, Jesus, are known as the servants, plural, for those who have placed their faith in Christ. There's this consistent contrast between those two types of people. In fact, we can categorize everybody who has ever lived in the human race between those who are aligned with the servant as servants and those who are not as the wicked. In a step from there is this, these two great prayers of repentance, both in Isaiah 59 and chapter 63 and 64. Israel is, is calling out, their, they see their need for redemption, for deliverance from sin. They repent, and they're beautiful poems of repentance. Then right in the middle, chapter 60 and 62, we're funneling in here to, to Isaiah 61, there's three poems, and it's about the servant announcing his kingdom. You're gonna see a lot of first-person pronoun references, my, me, I, throughout this passage. The servant announces the kingdom, and the servant also initiates and ushers in the kingdom. The same one who gives the invitation is himself fulfilling these kingdom promises through Christ. Everything in this, in this last section of Isaiah, everything is pointing to Isaiah 60 through 62. And the central poem in Isaiah 60 through 62 is, is this passage right here in Isaiah 61, the one that we're about to read. This is a very important passage to consider at Christmas, right? Because typically, we all go to the Gospels. We all read the Matthew 1 genealogy and mispronounce all the names that are in it. We go to the Luke 2 narrative account. I was just doing the, the Mingo Chapel at Mingo Academy this year, and we talked about the narrative in, in Linus, how he speaks the, uh, the real meaning of Christmas using the Luke 2 passage of scripture. Sometimes we go to John 1, sometimes we stay right there in, in Bethlehem and, and we talk about Herod, King Herod, and what he did with the babies in Bethlehem. Uh, rarely do we go to the prophets, and in most of those sections, those narratives and the gospels, they talk about what happened. Isaiah is very unique. This passage is very unique. It doesn't focus as much about what God did, but why he did it question we wrestle with every year at Christmas time, something that draws our hearts to the truth of the gospel. Why did God the Father send his son to die for us? Why would he make that sacrifice on our behalf? Isaiah 61 is going to answer that question. You business guys, this is the Messiah's job description. What did Jesus come to do? Here it is. Isaiah 61. Look down at your text, verse 1. Speaking the first person now, the Christ says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives 
and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them beautiful headdresses instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. glorified. Now, before we uh, talk into the details of this specific exchange, our broken hearts for divine bandages, I want to point out just a few observations about this text. Everything in Isaiah 61 centers around the Trinity. Right at the beginning when this text opens up, there's mention of the three persons of the Trinity. Look back at verse one. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me. First we see the spirit, the third person of the Trinity, speaking of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of the Lord God, your text might actually say the sovereign Lord in this context, speaks of the first person of the Trinity, the Father, and then it has these uh, pronouns, these first person pronoun references, me, mine, I, speaking of the Son, the second person of the Trinity. The Spirit, the Father, and the Son are all mentioned in this passage. The New Living Translation says the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord, Adonai Yahweh, almost always refers to the Father when you see those two names for God juxtaposed with one another. And typically, our, I want to point this out because typically our attention during Christmas time is almost solely focused on the Son. After all, it's His miraculous birth that we celebrate. It's His arrival in Bethlehem. God became man through Jesus. However, Isaiah will not allow us to emphasize the Son without forgetting about the Father and the Spirit. He will not allow us to emphasize the Spirit without forgetting about the Father and the Son. In fact, all three persons of the Trinity are all equally significant and equally God. Christmas is distinctly Trinitarian. It's important to remember it's the Father who sent the Son. It's the Spirit who anointed the Son. All three are, are important and significantly involved in every aspect of the Christmas story. But second, before we go too far, you see this phrase that Isaiah uses. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And that's not the first time we've read that almost verbatim in this prophet. Uh, we've seen it two other times in Isaiah. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 9, and one of the strongest passages that emphasizes our end times theology coming through this prophet. It's the one that says the wolf and the lamb will lie together. Isaiah 11 is the passage that says the entire earth will be full of the knowledge of God as the water covers the sea. In 11, verse 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. It's almost exact verbatim what we're reading right here in Isaiah 61, verse 1. The second time we see this, this phrase, it's in Isaiah chapter 42, the first of the famous servant songs of Isaiah. Isaiah 42, verse 1 says this, I will put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. When Isaiah picks up this this familiar phrase about the Messiah, about who he is. It's bringing a final and a climactic answer to the identity of the Christ, the identity of the Messiah. The questions that Jews have 
wrestled with for millennia. The same question that scholars will wrestle with even today for centuries. Who is this first person pronoun referring to in Isaiah 61? Who is exactly the me? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. When the Jews read Isaiah 40, 42, 61, even back in Isaiah 11, they don't see a reference specifically to the Messiah, especially as it's fulfilled in Jesus. They see those references as referring to the nation of Israel instead. Israel will bring justice to the nations. That's true, they will, through Jesus, through the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord God will rest upon Israel. When we get to Isaiah 61, without a shadow of a doubt, the me is a drastic and climactic fulfillment and connection to the Messiah who is, in fact, Jesus. The reason I know that is because it's followed by a very specific verb, and I want to read this very carefully. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me. That Hebrew verb is mashach, and here's how you say the the noun form of it, mashiach, or messiah. He is anointed. He has made me the messiah. Everything about this passage is driving us to Jesus as the messiah the Christ as the Messiah, the one who was born king to save people from their sins and to establish justice and righteousness on the earth forever. The reason that we can know this without a shadow of a doubt, not even, we don't even have to wonder about it, is because of what we read in the Gospel of Luke. I want you to hold your place in, in Isaiah 61. I want you to turn back to Luke, or forward to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. In the context of of Luke, I don't want to go into this too much. We're just going to read this passage quick. But Jesus has just been tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He enters and he finally begins his public ministry in a very small and insignificant town in Nazareth. Nazareth overlooks uh, the Jezreel Valley. And there's probably a very small synagogue that's been established there. The remnants, in fact, are, are still there. You can go and you can see them. Jesus was in this very small synagogue in Nazareth, in Nazareth when he comes and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah. And we read about it. Look down at Luke 4, uh, verse 16. This is the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. This is his first sermon in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 4, 16. He, speaking of Jesus, came to Nazareth, Nazareth, I'll get this right one of these times, when he had been brought up, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. It just so happened that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. A little bit different in his recollection and translation of that. Verse verse 19, though, is very significant. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he stops there, which is probably mid-sentence, mid-verse, when you go back and read Isaiah 61. 
Jesus is telling us about his first coming to the earth. His first coming was to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord to show grace and mercy because he was going to die for the sins of the people. It's when he comes back a second time that he's going to pick up the rest of Isaiah 63, the rest of that verse where he left off, in the day of the vengeance of the Lord our God. When Jesus comes on the scene and he turns to this passage in Isaiah, we read about it here in Luke. He himself is telling us this passage is fulfilled through him. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon the Messiah. That's me. I'm him. I'm fulfilling this ministry, and here is what I've come to do. I've come to exchange some things for you. Your chains for liberation. Your broken heart for my bandages. Jesus came and he, here's the first thing that Isaiah says. You can turn back to Isaiah 61. Verse one, the first thing he does is the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And that, that word poor refers to everybody inclusively who needs the gospel, those who are fallen in sin. You might think, hang on a second, uh, I live in America, which means I'm wealthier than probably 95% of the entire world. I'm in a middle class or an upper middle class home. Is the gospel for me? I'm not poor. Is this promise? Is this what Jesus came to do? And, and how am I a part of this if I really don't struggle with any wealth issues? The poor is not just referring to that which is material. The poor here is referring to that which is spiritual. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Oswald's got a great commentary on the um, book of Isaiah, and here's what he says about this term, the poor. He says, the connotation of this term, poor, is not restricted to financial or material conditions. Rather, it speaks to all who are distressed and in trouble for any reason, including sin. That means that the good news is for me. The good news is for you because we can find ourselves as part of this group of people known as the poor. The poor is both the high class and the low class. It's the significant and the insignificant. It's the rich and the poor materially because apart from Jesus, listen carefully, all of us have nothing. Apart from Jesus, all of us are poor in spirit, poor in eternal life, poor in life in and of ourselves. One of the great exchanges at Christmas time that we celebrate is that we have nothing. Jesus takes that upon himself. He gives us everything. We are poor. He gives us wealth. We are insignificant. He gives us significance. This, this first statement that he came to preach the good news to the poor is a summary statement for everything else that's fleshed out in Isaiah 61. Everything will qualify that independent phrase that begins it. Jesus came, his mission, his job description was to preach the good news to the poor. Um, guys, I'm gonna ask you uh, not to pull my man card on this, but I'm gonna share a story with you. Promise you're not gonna do it? Scott, I'm gonna pull my man card this week. Thanks, man. I did something I've never ever done in my entire life until this week. I read a, a Francine Rivers novel. <laughs> Guys, you, get, you hanging with me tight? Jenica's like, you sorry sucker. Man, will you get masculine for once? Brandy's been encouraging me to read 
a Francine Rivers novel, and I've always just kind of been like, yeah, I don't, you know, okay, I'll try. Got into this one. Have you guys read Redeeming Love before? It's a great. Nina, did you just read it again? You probably read it like 12 times, I'm sure. It's, it, it is a fantastic story. It's a, it's a great story. What Francine Rivers does is she, she puts a very famous biblical story to a different time in history. She makes it a, a fictional account. What might it have been like if we experienced the time of Hosea the prophet in our day? Or where she writes it is in the 1800s during the gold rush in California. And the story is all about Hosea. It's an it's a analogy, a metaphor for the ministry of Hosea. Remember, God called this prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute, to love her, welcome her into, her, into his home, take her hand in marriage as a metaphor for the relationship between God and Israel. God the Father, the groom, married the bride, Israel, much like we, the church, are the bride of Christ. Israel was that in the Old Testament. and still fulfilling into, into the New Testament as well. As the story goes in Hosea, Hosea the prophet's a man, and, and he marries Gomer, who's a prostitute. And even after he marries her, she decides to turn away from Hosea, unfaithful to her marriage vows, commit adultery. The story is about the prophet going back to her over and over again, showing him that uh, her, that he loves her unconditionally. There's nothing that she can do that will take that love away. In Redeeming Love, when you read this, it's, it's depicted the, uh, the prophet Hosea is Michael. His name is Michael, and her name is Angel. And she's been in prostitution since she was about eight years old, raised, born and raised basically in a brothel. Gomer was unfaithful, committed adultery, and, and so this, this prostitute, Angel, was also unfaithful. Michael comes along, rescues her out of that lifestyle, uh, takes her to a farm where they, they can establish their marriage and begin their life together. And the first chance that she has to get out of that, even though Michael had rescued her, from that past lifestyle and all the damage that had been done, what was continuing to be done, the first chance that she has, she goes right back to the brothel. She goes right back to the people who are abusing her and taking advantage of her. Michael, of course, shows up on the scene and rescues her again, just brings her out of that about three or four times. This happens in the, the context of the story. And there's a way that uh, Francine Rivers captures this, and I think it's good, I wanted to to share this with you, There's a little paragraph in here. She recalls it this way. All the way back, she, speaking of this prostitute, Angel, <clears throat> she had imagined him, Michael, gloating and taunting, rubbing her face in her own broken pride. Why would, why would you do this? Why are you going back to this old life? Instead, he knelt before her, washed her dirty, blistered feet, throat burning. She looked down at his dark head and struggled with the feelings that were rising in her. She waited for them to die away, but they wouldn't. It's a really powerful narrative of one man taking a, a very broken person. Issues, psychological, physical, sexual, 
that none of us could really even imagine probably in this room. Despite her horrific past, despite her terrible present, her decisions to go back into that lifestyle, she decided, he decided to love her, to rescue her, to redeem her, and to go back to her over and over again. This is, the, this is what I think of, at least this week, when I was reading Isaiah 61. The text, it continues to bring good news to the poor after that. It says, he has sent me, Jesus, to bind up the broken Hearted. That Hebrew word for bind up is havas. It takes us back to the very first chapter in Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah 1, verse 5 and 6. The whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint, from the sole of the foot to the head, from bottom to top, there is no soundness, there is no health, there is only bruises and sores and raw wounds that are not bound up because of our sin before God. The word for bound up literally in the Hebrew means to wrap around. This is, this is actually the same word where you get to saddle a horse in the Old Testament. Remember, you gotta get those saddle straps all the way around the horse. When we have a wound, we often need a bandage for it. We bandage that wound, we wrap it around. We enclose the wound. We allow it to scar and to heal over. The noun form of this word means surgeon in Isaiah which is a clear reference to God, to the work of Christ on the cross. The ESV of Isaiah 61 says this, Christ comes to exchange our broken hearts for his bandages. The New Living Translation puts it this way, to comfort the brokenhearted. Listen to NIV, to bind up the brokenhearted. New King James Version says to heal the brokenhearted. This phrase in Isaiah 61 is, is begging us not only to look at what we receive from God through the gospel, this gift of salvation because of Christmas, but also what we exchange to him. What we give to him is our brokenness. We exchange Christ's healing for our hurt, his bandages for our broken hearts. Christmas, what I wanna think about just this morning as we approach Christmas is to exchange our hurts for Christ's healing to exchange the hurts that we've experienced for the only complete and perfect healing that we will have in Christ. It's interesting, when you, when you examine the life of Christ, healing is, is not something that's uh, a major in his ministry. You get a lot of stories about healing lepers and uh, lifting up the lame man and helping him to walk again, curing afflictions, but a lot of those are just a minor aspect of the entire healing ministry that Christ is depicted with in the Gospels. In Jesus' total ministry, healing is significant. It's not a major part. Physical healing is not a major part. It's only minor. The sections in the Gospel where the disciples even are given power to heal diseases and to cast out demons. Remember what Jesus says to them when they have success? Don't be so enamored that you can cast out demons. Don't be so enamored that you can heal diseases. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like a lightning bolt. I want you to be enamored with the fact that your names are written in the book of life. Physical healing is, is certainly something that we should celebrate. 
and bring attention to when we think about Christ and the good news of the gospel, but it is not the center. Spiritual healing is by far the emphasis. Sometimes Christ healed miraculously. Other times he didn't heal people. He certainly didn't heal everybody that he came in contact with. Sometimes he attributed diseases to Satan. Other times he didn't say anything about where the diseases or sickness came from. But every time, regardless of the person, regardless of the situation, if there was a physical healing or if there wasn't a physical healing, every single time Jesus' intention was to heal the broken heart. Every single time there was something deeper spiritually than what we were seeing physically and what was being experienced materially. For Jesus' physical healing was a way to help others see their deeper spiritual need for healing. The healing of their greatest disease of sin. The greatest miracle. The reason that we can celebrate, the reason that we can bring our hurts to Jesus at Christmas is because of his spiritual healing and giving us hearts of flesh instead of a heart of stone and transforming us from death to life and giving us everlasting life instead of everlasting death. Healing broken hearts is by far the most important, the most emphasized aspect of Jesus' healing ministry in the New Testament. And at Christmas time, God asks us to exchange our broken hearts for his perfect healing. If you don't know Jesus, your heart is broken. It is hard because of sin. And you can exchange that for one that's complete and whole in Christ. Second thing we can think about at Christmas is that God is our healer, but he is also a, a breaker. It's an anomaly, it's a paradox. But at the very same time that Christ is healing us, he is breaking us. He's breaking us of ourselves and of our selfish way that we have been living our life, the entire life apart from Christ. God is our healer, but he is also our breaker. God will do anything in his power to bring his healing touch into our lives, including wounding us. How does a, how does a surgeon fix a broken bone? What's the first thing he is going to do? He is going to inflict a wound. He is going to cut open the body so that the healing process may take place. How does an oncologist remove a tumor? He's gonna spill your blood and get that tumor out of there one way or another, but he is going to inflict pain. Even a therapist will often bring more painful things out of your life before they are able to get to the healing things as you work through them. And in order to exchange your broken heart for Christ's perfect healing, the great physician is going to wound us well before he ever heals us. He is going to break us before he mends us. He is going to split us open before he joins us back together and how he has created us to be. Surgeons do in fact heal, but they often do so through a definitive wound. A famous passage in Luke chapter two, uh, it's called the, the Nunc Dementis. We talked about this last year at Christmas time. Simeon blesses Mary and he says this, this child that you are delivering will be destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. And then he says this, a sword is going to pierce your heart too, Mary. It's a, a famous passage in Proverbs that goes something like this. Gary Braswell was talking about it not too long ago. 
It says, Profuses are the, profuse are the kisses of an enemy, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. See, the truth of the gospel and what we celebrate, bringing our hurts to Christ's healing and understanding the gospel at Christmas time, here's the reality. The one who heals us is also the one who breaks us of ourself. He will not allow us to continue to inflict ourselves with pain and suffering. He will, in fact, heal all of these things before all is said and done. But in order to heal, we have to understand what's broken. Our hearts are completely broken apart from Christ. He is the one who heals it with the touch of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, giving us new life instead of the old.